Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Today is June 3rd, year of our Lord 2020, which means that today is exactly the 19th anniversary of the first service that we ever had here in this building. After meeting for a couple of years in my living room, God was kind enough to make this building available to us. First, he made the land next door available to us. I won't recount the whole story because you've heard it enough times, but we bought that land next door and then this house became available. And through the years, we have converted it from being a house into the the church building that it is today. And I don't think any of us 19 years ago realized how big a blessing it was that God provided us with a place where we could meet all these years later, especially given the current set of circumstances. Not only did he give us a place, but he gave us a new building. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the history and the story of this building is pretty remarkable. And looking at it today, all these years later, I think it's in as good, if not better shape today than it was when we moved into it all those years ago. And the land next door, which was originally horse land with a barn on it, was a very messy piece of land that looks very good today. So whenever I drive through Smyrna, and I so frequently use Hazelwood here as my cut through to various different places, every time I drive by here, it makes me happy to know that we're situated right here on a main thoroughfare of Smyrna, Tennessee, and that for 19 years we have made the declaration, just by the very fact that we exist and the sign out front, we have made the declaration that the grace of God exists and that it's preached here and has been for 19 years now, which is kind of remarkable. It's remarkable that I'm still standing up and taking nourishment on a regular basis. Uh, it's it's remarkable that God has been this faithful to us. So I just wanted to observe that anniversary. And probably providential that this Sunday we will be taking communion together as we begin our 20th year together here at GCA. I think that is a good footing on which to begin our 20th year. I have been asked, and I beg your indulgence here in the room for just a moment, but I have been asked several times by several people, both by email and private text and Facebook, I have been asked what I think about these current situations, and I have purposefully been quiet about it. I have purposefully not talked about either the the COVID-19 situation in the largest sense. And certainly I haven't talked about the current situation with George Floyd 
and the police and the resulting protests and the riots that broke out. And so I'm just going to make a very brief, very quick statement tonight so that everybody knows what my perspective is. It is not that I am avoiding those topics. It's just that everybody, and I do mean everybody, has an opinion. Mm -hmm. And their opinion is as valid as my opinion would be. My opinion is no different than anyone else's opinion in terms of having any actual answers or any actual solutions. I think we all agree, all right-thinking people across the board would agree that the actions of the cop who put his knee on George Floyd's neck, resulting in Mr. Floyd's asphyxiation and death, we would all agree that's terrible. Mm -hmm. That's a horrible crime. And so it is appropriate that now the cops are having to answer for having done that. But then I think we would also all agree that looting and arson and killing is not the proper response. I think if you were one of the people who in good conscience was exercising your constitutional right to peaceful assembly and redress of government, that is promised to you in the Constitution. And so the protesters who took to the street in order to protest the crime that happened to George Floyd, I'm with them. I'm for them. Good for you. Get out there and make your voices heard because this is a crime that has happened. But unfortunately, those protests got hijacked by extremists who just want to burn and destroy and loot. And if I were one of the right-minded, peaceful protesters who wanted to go out and make my voice heard, I would be very angry at the people who hijacked our movement in order to turn it into a criminal enterprise. Because now, when we think about it, when we look at it, as we see it on TV or in the news, you don't hear about the central issue. The central issue is the crime that lay at the heart of what happened between the cop and George Floyd. But that's no longer what people are looking at. They're looking at the looting. They're looking at the riots. They're looking at the arson. They're looking at the police that are being run down or shot in the back of the head. They're looking at people who are just trying to protect their business who are being beaten. And so that becomes the front page story. And if I were one of the people who had a genuine, honest grievance about the way police treat certain segments of our society, I would also be very upset that my grievance had been hijacked by people who just want to create havoc, create trouble, and riot in the streets. So what can I say about that? The best thing I can do for anybody is not give them my opinion, because like I said, everybody's got an opinion. 
and none of our opinions are able to actually solve the great big issues that lay at the heart of all this trouble. The best thing I can do to help anybody is to take them back to the word of God. The word of God does not opinionate. The word of God declares what is right and true. The word of God says not to riot in the streets. And so Christians should not be rioting in the streets. But Christians should also be defending the rights of the downtrodden, of the people who don't have a voice. And so I am totally in favor of Christian people who feel like they want to support the appropriate redress of government that these original marches and rallies were supposed to demonstrate. But I certainly don't believe that you can call yourself a God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian and be out looting, rioting, and killing because the Bible adjures you not to do any of those things. The Bible also has an answer for why. Why are these things happening? It's really upsetting. You look at these things happening and you think this is just terrifying. Terrifying on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. Terrifying in the knee on a neck and terrifying in the killing of shop owners or the looting and burning down of businesses. It's terrifying across the board. So the Bible tells you why and doesn't opinionate about why. The Bible declares why, and it's because men are depraved. Mankind is evil. The heart of human beings, unless they are regenerated, those hearts are nothing but wickedness continually. Mm -hmm. And what we see are these outbreaks of wickedness that demonstrate that, yet again, the Bible is true. The Bible is accurate. The anthropology of the Bible runs contrary to what many people prefer to think. We want to think that there's a little spark of good in everybody, and that if we could just fan that flame, that generally good people will become better. That's not what the Bible says. Bible says that men are wicked, and if God lifts his restraining hand, they will demonstrate their wickedness. They will show the world how truly corrupt they are. And that's what we're seeing right now. And who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Who knows if this is a precursor of things to come? But what we know for sure is the Bible says that men are going to wax worse and worse. And how many times have you heard me say, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's getting worse. With each day, we are drawing closer and closer to the return of Christ. And that is a good thing. But in the meantime, we are told to be peaceful and to be loving, to be quiet, to work with our own hands, to give, to be generous, to love our neighbors, to even love our enemies, we are told to uphold Christian principles regardless of how crazy 
the world gets. So the best thing I can do in responding to the question, well, what do you think of all this? How come you haven't responded to it? How come you haven't said anything about it? The best thing I can do for you is say, well, the word of God says this, because that's where there's comfort. That's where there's peace that passes understanding. That's where there is the eternal logic that makes sense of everything that we're seeing going on in the world today. And that's the only place where we're going to find peace, safety, and comfort in the midst of the riots and the looting and the burning and the knees on necks that go on here in these United States and around the world. So the best thing I can do for people is what I've done now for 19 years and just take them back to, yes, but the word of God says this. Make sense? Yes. So thank you for bearing with me on those comments. But now that I've put it on tape and it will be on the website the next time, and there will be a next time, that somebody says, are you ignoring this? Why haven't you said anything about this? I can just send them to this recording because I am convinced that the absolute best thing I can do for people is direct them back to the word of God. It's the only thing that makes sense in my way of thinking. We are in Proverbs chapter 30. We got as far as verse 10 last week. We actually worked through verse 9. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 10 says, Do not slander a slave or a servant to his master. In other words, you don't tell somebody something bad about their own servant. The reason is because he, the master, will curse you and you will be found guilty. We were told earlier in the book of Proverbs that we're not supposed to enter into arguments that aren't ours. In fact, Solomon compared that to tweaking the ears on a dog. And if you grab the ears of a dog, that dog is going to turn and bite you because his ears are sensitive. So Solomon said, if you don't want to get bit, don't tweak the ears of a dog and don't get into arguments that aren't yours to begin with. So a servant belongs to a certain person. He answers to that certain person. And if you go there and start slandering that slave, that servant, and then the master finds out that it actually is slander. The word slander is important in this sense because it means that you're saying negative things about him on purpose in order to undermine his reputation in the eyes of other people. That's what slander is. We even have laws here against slander. So it's more than just criticizing somebody. It's trying to destroy their reputation. And if you're destroying the reputation of a servant to his master, if his master then finds out that what you said was untrue and was indeed slander, he's going to curse you because you're going to be uncovered as actually guilty. Now that idea, that concept made its way all the way into Romans 14. Turn there for just a moment. In Romans 14, 4, 
Paul is talking about people passing judgment on other people. Starting at verse 1, it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. So the whole idea of what Paul is saying is it's between him and God, and you are not supposed to criticize him for the way that he is being obedient to God according to his own conscience, which is why in verse 4 he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? That's what we just read. You're not to slander someone else's servant or slave. In this context, it is the servant of God himself. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the idea is a servant stands or falls before his own master, and that relationship is between him and his master. You are not to insert yourself in it in order to slander somebody else. So not only is this about interjecting yourself into things that you really have no business interjecting yourself into, but it also has to do with not speaking poorly, slandering somebody who's of a lower estate than you. Not slandering somebody just because you think you can get away with it because they don't have the power, they don't have the ability to influence people the way that you do. So you take advantage of it the same way that you would take advantage of somebody who's poor, same way that Solomon has said several times that you don't starve out people who are poor, that you give, that you help, that you lift people up. Same idea here. You don't slander a slave just because you can. You don't slander him to his master because you're going to be discovered. You're going to be found guilty, and then he's going to curse you. Now, the next four verses kind of work as a unit because they all start with the phrase, there is a kind of man. Now, these four verses are going to be statements about the relative morality of certain kinds of people. And then as we continue through this chapter, it's going to move from instructions about obedience to righteousness and your behavior and morality. It's going to move into just observations, just things that are wise observations, things that you're going to read and go, yeah, that's true. Verse 11, there is a kind of man... The assumption here being, with each time that he says there is a kind of man, he's going to describe a man who has negative characteristics. So he's describing a way that you should not be. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. The necessity of honoring your father and mother is so important in God's economy that it's right in the top ten. It's right in the commandments. It's the fifth of them. Honor your father and your mother. But there is nevertheless a kind of man, a rebellious sort of person, 
who is going to curse his father and who will not bless his mother. Look over for a moment at verse 17 of this same chapter. Here's the end result of a person like that. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, his eyes, and the young eagles will eat it. Okay, that's kind of descriptive. The eagles, the birds of prey, are going to pluck out the eyes and eat the eyes of a person who mocks their father or scorns their mother the way that Agur is describing it. What he's saying is that person's not going to get a proper burial. They're going to be left out where the wild animals and the elements and the birds of the air get to his body and devour him. So if you want to finish your life peacefully, if you want to die and have a proper burial, then you follow the commands of God. You go back to the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and by following the commands of God, you are then going to honor your father and your mother. But Agur recognizes and points out that there is a kind of man who doesn't do that. He curses his father. He does not bless his mother. But verse 17 tells us the end of that man is not good. So you have plenty of impetus, plenty of reason to honor your parents. And I just want to point that out to my son <laughs> one more time so that there is no confusion. Noted. Birds got it. Okay. <laughs> Verse 12. There is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes. We have seen Solomon talk about this. We see this concept carried into the New Testament that human beings are very good at justifying themselves. How many times, as we've been looking at the book of Proverbs, have you heard me say that human beings have this remarkable ability to justify themselves regardless of what they do? They just think that what they're doing isn't really that bad because, after all, they can find somebody worse. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Pol Pot. I'm not somebody worse. Therefore, I must be okay. And yet there is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes. I'm not that bad. What I'm doing is okay. What I'm doing is justifiable. God understands I think we could also throw in the phrase, it's all under the blood. Jesus has paid for it all. You hear that plenty of times. Carol just rolled her eyes as I said that. Because we've all heard it. We've all heard people in their attempts to self-justify say that God, for some reason, kind of bends the rules. He grades on a curve when it comes to them. And they are pure in their own eyes. And because they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing, they think that God doesn't see anything wrong with what they're doing. Look at the second half of that verse. There is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes, and yet he is not washed from his filthiness. He remains in his sinfulness. He remains in his filthy estate. He remains with that evil heart and that pernicious mind that he was born with. And yet, and we've all seen it, we've all experienced it, we know what it looks like, we know what it sounds like. People who are truly, genuinely depraved, who just don't think there's anything wrong with them. They're pure in their own eyes. And yet what they don't know about themselves 
is that they're still in their filth. They have not been washed from their filth. They have not been redeemed. They have not been cleaned up. They have no new birth inside them. And yet they think they're okay. I have said for so many years now, so I'm going to stress the point one more time. Big font, large letters, underscore. One of the characteristics of our sinful estate is that we have no idea how sinful we are. That is part of our depravity that we can't comprehend our depravity. Because in order for us to comprehend our sinfulness and our depravity, we would have to have a less sinful perspective to work from. And only God has a completely holy and righteous perspective. And from his perfect perspective, we are depraved and sinful and fallen and unclean and absolutely filthy. Evil in our intentions and in our emotions and in our desires and in our flesh. That's the way the righteous, holy God sees us. But because we are walking around in this sinful estate, our sinful estate lies to us and tells us we're not that bad. And the more depraved, the more sinful a person is, I think the more their sin lies to them, tells them that they're okay. How many God-hating non-Christian people have you known in your life who actually seem to believe and will tell you that they're, they're fine, they're pretty good? And if there is a God, he'll let them in because, you know, they're, they're pretty good people. Then they'll list a few things that they're not guilty of, like, well, you know, I've never killed anyone. Well, that is not the beginning of evil. Killing people is not the beginning of evil. Your depravity starts at not giving genuine credibility and worship to God. And everything else is a result of that. Everything we're seeing in the world today that I spent the first few minutes talking about is a demonstration, is an outgrowth of people who feel fully sufficient within themselves that they can do whatever they want to do and that there's going to be no price to pay. I put a hoodie on, I put a mask on, and then I broke a window and stole all the stuff out of the store, and no one's ever going to catch me because nobody knows who I am. God knows. And you're ignoring the fact that God knows because even in your wickedness, you refuse to accept the wisdom that God has put in front of you. And one day you are going to be held accountable for all that. There is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes, and yet he is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind... Oh, how lofty are his eyes. So I'm going to ask you the same question I've asked you now a million times. The answer to this should be permanently embedded in your brain, should be tattooed to your forehead. You should know the answer to it before I even ask it. Pride. Absolutely. The most often referenced sin in the Bible. It's human pride. Arrogance. That's what Agur is getting at here. There is a kind of man who is not only pure in his own eyes, but how lofty are his eyes. Mm. By the way, if his eyes are lofty, meaning that his eyes are always lifted up, that also means that he's looking down his nose. 
He's looking down on everybody else around him. He thinks he is the good one. He is the righteous one. And his eyelids are raised. And the NASB says, in arrogance, because that is what the Hebrew language is intimating here. The reason that he has lofty eyes and his eyelids are raised is because he thinks he's really something. He thinks he's the important one. He's the significant one. He is full of pride. He is full of arrogance. And I think that's a lot of the reason that he's pure in his own eyes. And yet, we're talking about an absolutely depraved, filthy, evil person. Anybody know anybody who has demonstrated that sort of high-minded arrogance lately? We all do. And yet we can watch them, and it usually isn't more than five or ten minutes before you go, well, that ain't right. <laughs> that's, that's not godly. That's not wise. There is a kind. Oh, how lofty are his eyes. And his eyelids are raised in arrogance. And then read how descriptive verse 14 is. There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords. And his jaw teeth are like knives. The description here from Agur is his upper teeth are sharp like swords. And the teeth in his jaw are sharp like knives. To devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from men. That's right back at that idea of people who in their arrogance look down on lesser people than themselves. And they devour them. They take advantage of them. They do everything they can to hurt, to harm, in order to aggrandize themselves. Because they see themselves as important and significant. And they don't see the value of that other person who is also made in the image of God. So Agur describes them as devouring. But their whole mouth is full of sharp swords and sharp knives which give them the ability to shred the needy and the poor of this world. And I think that verse describes a lot of what we're seeing going on again right now in the world. The people who can shred other people are doing it. Verse 15 then. The leech has two daughters... Now, by the way, I think verse 15, this first line, is the entirety of the verse. After this line, it should have said 16 there, because it's really the beginning of the next thought. This is a very singular thought. The leech, we're talking about the blood-sucking animal here, and Agur seems to be using that as an analogy for people who take advantage of other people. We still use the word that way these days. If there's someone who's always taking advantage of you, you may refer to them as a leech. I've got to get rid of this guy. He's just leeching off me. The leech has two daughters, two offspring, and their names are give and give. <laughs> just keep giving. Keep giving to me. Keep giving more. Keep giving up what you've got. 
keep giving up your humanity, give up your food, give up your wealth, give up your reputation, just keep giving and giving so that I can build myself up and take more advantage of you so that I can shred you with the swords and the knives of my mouth so that I can completely devour the afflicted on the planet. That is what a leech is like in this planet. It's also true in the opposite way of reading it. If you see somebody who is constantly, give me, give me, it's about me, give, give, then you know for a fact what you've got on your hands is a leech, a bloodsucker, somebody who is just taking advantage. Then... We're going to read several verses where Agur is going to start enumerating things. There are three things. There are three, even four. He's going to start numbering things that are really just observations. But he says there are three things that will never be satisfied. Four that will never say enough. So he's now going to tell you four things that he has observed that are never satisfied. They're never full. They never reach the point of going, okay, enough. I'm good. The first one is the grave, Sheol, the place of the dead. You never hear it say, no vacancy. We're good. We're filled up. Instead, as many people as live also die, and the grave just opens its arms and welcomes as many to the death as they can get. The next one that never says enough is the barren womb because it's never satisfied. And so the barren womb would never say, no, I'm good, I'm full, I'm satisfied. And then the next one is earth that is never satisfied with water. In other words, it rains. It rains all the time. It rains constantly. And the earth never says, okay, that's good. You can hold off now. We're done with the whole growing thing. We don't need any more water. Instead, the earth takes all the water that the clouds will give it. And the fourth is fire never says enough. Once a fire starts, it takes everything in its path. Okay, so then you may ask, what is the similarity? What is the unifying factor between the grave, Sheol, a barren womb, earth that's never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough? What is the unifying element that brings those four together? You may ask. Go ahead. Ask. Because the answer is, I don't know. That's why I said some of these things are just observations. Agur has just looked at the world and he said, you know, I can think of four things that are just never really satisfied. And then that's it. There's no moral lesson. There's no behavioral lesson attached to it. It's just simply a recognition that this is true. And then verse 17, we have already looked at the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. And then in verse 18, 
we're back to the form that we saw in verse 16, where he's observing things and saying there's three, even four of things. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four, which I do not understand. In other words, he's going to observe four things and say, these are really remarkable things. These things occur. These things exist. And, uh, and I always kind of marvel at them. Here's the things that he listed. The way of an eagle in the sky. I think we'd all agree with that. I was out today driving. And a hawk came down like out of nowhere and flew across the street right in front of me. And I instinctively kind of hit the brake and, and had to watch him because it is kind of wonderful to see these animals that can just float on the wind. I can't do that. You can't do that. It's really something very wonderful to watch. But then he says, the second thing is the way of a serpent on a rock. A serpent will sun himself on a rock. And on a smooth stone, there's really nothing to hang on to, and yet he will climb his way up there and slither his way up there and, and then circle himself and sun himself on the rock. And Agur says, that's really something. Look at that. That is designed by God. That exists. That happens. And it's really wonderful. It's, it's built into the structure of God's universe, and yet none of us really comprehend it. None of us really designed it. All we can ever do is observe it. Say, wow, that's really something. The third is the way of a ship in the middle of a sea. When there is a ship in the middle of a sea and it's being tossed about by the waves and the wind, and it's rocking and reeling and yet doesn't sink, and the waves rise up across the hull and washes across the boat and the mast sways and, and then writes itself. And the boat doesn't sink. He says, that's really a pretty marvelous thing. This invention, this boat thing, it's been around as long as Noah. This boat thing is pretty amazing. And then after he has said, and we would all agree, we would just all agree with these things. I like looking at eagles and birds in the sky. I don't like looking at serpents quite that much, and yet I respect the fact that they exist, they're part of God's creation, and they do things that we don't do and can't do. They're perfectly designed for the environment they live in. I'm really fascinated by all three of those things, but look at the fourth one. And the way of a man with a maid. A maid is a young, unmarried girl. And so a man gets around a maid and anybody who has raised young boys know that there are things that you will tell him. Things like comb your hair or take a shower or don't wear that in public. <laughs> and he won't listen to you. And then he'll meet a girl. And then all of a sudden he is the hair combinist, shower takingest, best dressed guy around because he's trying to impress a girl. <laughs> Everything about him changes. 
because he's trying to get the girl. He's trying to impress the girl. And that drive, that testosterone-fueled drive to get the girl is something that all of us men go through in our lives. And Agur lists that with the things that are just fascinating to him. Three things that are just too wonderful for me. Four that I don't understand. Okay, so what is the unifying factor of these four? The eagle, the serpent, the ship, and the man with the maid? What's the unifying factor? We don't know. It's just that they're all wonderful and beyond understanding. And that is true. Sometimes young men chasing girls are beyond understanding. That is just a fact. Then look at verse 20. Now we're back to talking about leeches that are into give, give me, people who devour other people, people who have lofty raised eyes, the kind of person who is pure in their own eyes, and yet they're not washed from their filthiness. Verse 20 says, there is a way of an adulterous woman. Earlier, we kept seeing there is a kind of man, a kind of person who's like this. Well, he's kind of returned to that and said, there is a way of an adulterous woman. And his description of her is, she eats and she wipes her mouth. In other words, she satiates herself. And then she wipes her mouth, which is a sign of, I'm done. I'm done eating. And yet, she says, I've done nothing wrong. So, an adulterous woman is deluding herself. She will, in fact, continue in her ways because she is completely self-involved, because she has a high look, a proud, arrogant heart. She doesn't see anything wrong with her own behavior. She's pure in her own eyes, and yet she's not washed from her filthiness. And her adultery is a sin against God, but she doesn't see it that way. She justifies herself. She eats. She wipes her mouth. She says, I've done nothing wrong. I think that's pretty explanatory right on its face. Then starting at verse 21, Agur describes situations that seem incorrect, improper, events that don't make sense in the natural course of things. And so he says, under three things, the earth quakes, and under four, it cannot bear up. That's his way of saying there are just certain things that are just improper, things that should not be. This is not the way that things ought to work out. The first of them is under a slave when he becomes a king. Okay, that technically should not be the way that things happen. Somebody who has served out their life as a slave is not in the family line or the lineage or the situation where he should become a king. And when he does become king, then he's going to try to balance the scales. He may feel that he's been unjustly treated, and he's going to make people pay for that. He's going to pay people back because he finally has the power, he finally has the authority, and that is why Agur would say, it's like when the earth quakes, the earth cannot bear up under a slave who becomes a king. The second is, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. All the way through the book of Proverbs, we have seen this notion that lazy people, foolish people who don't work, also starve. 
they don't eat they should not eat that's even carried into the New Testament Paul says if a man doesn't work he doesn't eat and so that concept is firmly embedded in the Bible and so it is an improper description of the way things ought to be to see a fool a lazy man who is also satisfied with his food he's got plenty to eat in other words he can be lazy he can be a fool he can do nothing don't work and he's full and he eats regularly well that's not the way things should work so as you can see Agur is saying some of the same things that Solomon has said he's talking about some of the same concepts but he's just approaching them a different way he's saying that these things are improper if they happen this way the third is under an unloved woman when she gets a husband at some point she is going to want to pay back she is an unloved abused woman a woman who has not been cared for and then when she does get a husband the implication she seems to be that she's going to hurt him gonna make him pay and the fourth is a maidservant when she supplants her mistress the Bible tells us about that when we go back and look at Sarah and Hagar there was a friction between them that got all the way to Abram going to God and saying you know, what do I do about this God was the one who said send Hagar and her son out of the camp he's not going to be heir with your child there was friction between the maidservant when she supplanted her mistress so these four things Agur says are things that he doesn't understand some things are fascinating and wonderful to him but under some things it doesn't make sense the earthquakes the earth can't bear up under these injustices a slave that becomes king a fool that's satisfied with food an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress four things are small on the earth now this is just another one of those wisdom observations Solomon earlier has said consider the ant that the ant does his work when it's time to do the work he lays up he prepares for the coming season when he's not going to be able to do the work pay attention to the ant well Agur is going to do the same thing he's going to point at the ant except he says this four things are small on the earth but they are exceedingly wise they are exceedingly clever in the things that they do the ants are not strong folk that's true you can squish them under your thumb you can step on them they don't have any real power over human beings and yet they prepare their food for the summer so they demonstrate even though they're small and even though they're weak in comparison to larger creatures nevertheless they have an innate wisdom that God has planted into them where they prepare their food in the summer so that when the winter comes and there's no available food they've got food stored up there's great wisdom in that wisdom that even Solomon pointed to to say be like that when the work is available do the work when it's time for harvest harvest your food store it up be ready for winter otherwise you're gonna go hungry Agur joins him in saying the ants are not a strong folk 
but they prepare their food in the summer. The badgers are not mighty folk. They're not folk that uh, can get together as a group and form a society that can overthrow a bunch of oxen or elephants or human beings or most any other kind of cattle on the planet. They're not mighty animals, and yet they make their houses in the rocks. How do they do that? How do they live among the rocks? We can't do that. If we put you in the rocks and said, here, fend for yourself, enjoy your cave, you're not going to last very long. You're going to be very quick to say, i got to figure out how to make a fire. i got to find some food. It's cold in here. I need water. I need sustenance. I need... And yet, he says, that's something you can't do, and the badgers do it. And the badgers are not the mightiest of creatures, but look at their internal wisdom. Look, they know how to do something that you don't know how to do because it was given to them by God. It was implanted in them. Locusts have no king, and yet all of them go out in ranks. They all go out as a group, and yet they don't have a leader. We're about to find out what that's like. I think this summer is the summer that the 17-year cicadas are supposed to come up. But I remember 17 years ago when they came up, and it was just swarms of them. But if you check with them and say, who's boss here, so that you can maybe deal with them? Could you maybe go over there for a while? They don't have a boss. They don't have a king. They don't have anybody organizing them. And yet they have this built-in wisdom where they know how to go out in groups, in ranks, to stick together, to protect each other. And a lizard, you can grasp with your hands. If you see a small lizard, if you see a little gecko, if you see a small lizard, you can pick him up in your hands. He's harmless. He can't do anything to you. In other words, he has no stature. He has no importance. He has no significance. And yet, there are lizards in the king's palaces. Lizards figured out how to live in the best housing humans have ever made. So that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so here are the things that, the four things that Agur says are small on the earth and yet they're exceedingly wise. There are ants who prepare their food, badgers who live in the rocks, locusts who stay in ranks, and lizards who end up living in king's palaces. That is wisdom that is just built into them from God. I think Agur brings these things up to demonstrate See, wisdom has its advantages. If you're going to be a fool your whole life, if you're going to ignore the wisdom that God provides, then you're not even really going to demonstrate the kind of wisdom that ants and lizards demonstrate. Verse 29 then says, There are three things which are stately in their march. Now, I happen to think, and this is just me, I think he really points out the first few so that he can get to the one that he was really wanting to point at because I think he's saying this almost a little bit uh, sarcastically, but you see what you think when we get there. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk, meaning they walk upright. 
they walk proudly they walk confidently they walk knowing that no one's going to hurt or harm them the first is a lion who is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any well that's true that's why even the Wizard of Oz created a comic book character of a cowardly lion because lions are not cowardly they're stately they're sure of themselves that's why we call them king of the beast and so Agur says a lion is mighty among all the beasts and he does not retreat before any and then the strutting rooster and the male goat also the male goat the billy goat doesn't back down he puts his head down and butts against you he'll get you to back down he'll get you to leave and anybody who has ever had chickens knows that a rooster walks around arrogantly very proudly it's where the saying the cock of the walk is from that is where the phrase the cock of the walk is from absolutely so the strutting rooster the male goat the lion these are all creatures that we would agree they don't back down for anybody but look at the fourth one and a king here's where I think the sarcasm comes in not just a king because a king can walk arrogantly but if you happen to come across him he's just another man and you can overpower him but and a king when his army is with him that, that's kind of amusing to me yeah when a king's got a whole army behind him then he can strut proudly with his chest out with his shoulders back saying yeah nobody can mess with me I got my army behind me and they will defend me is it worth saying that I think the same thing about so many of our politicians these days who go out and demonstrate how they are just like the common folk as long as they have armed guards around them <laughs> anyway verse 32 if you have been foolish in exalting yourself or you have plotted evil then put your hand to your mouth boy what a good way to kind of end the Proverbs next week we're going to be looking at what King Lemuel said his oracle about the worthy woman but as far as the actual proverbs that we've been looking at throughout this book it is only appropriate that it ends with shut up how often have we seen that in the book of proverbs <laughs> don't be quick to answer think about what you're saying don't don't be in a hurry with your tongue you can do so much damage with the way that you talk and so we're told here if you've been foolish in exalting yourself which is where we started tonight lifting yourself up being arrogant being proud self-justifying having that high look thinking that your behavior is just fine even though you're filthy if you've been foolish in lifting yourself up in exalting yourself or if you have plotted evil put your hand over your mouth just shut it's some of the best advice for the many many weeks that we've been reading the book of Proverbs now there are several things that we can glean out of it big thematic elements that we can say okay now that was really a good piece of advice 
Well, let me adjure you to really pay attention to this particular piece of advice, which is before you do damage, before you hurt somebody, before you say things that you're going to regret, before you lift yourself up, before your lips praise you instead of somebody else's lips, if you're starting to talk about yourself in such a way that you are demeaning other people in order to make yourself look good or if you are plotting with other people to go out and do damage, to go out and burn, to go out and loot, to go out and destroy things. And obviously, the things that are happening right now were pre-planned. I mean, for heaven's sake, in many of the places where the riots broke out, there were pallets of bricks delivered. I mean, you don't think that was pre-planned? Somebody sat down and plotted it. If you have ever plotted evil, if you've ever been full of yourself, lifting yourself up and exalting yourself, stop it. Put your hand over your mouth. That is what real wisdom looks like. Mm. And finally, for the churning of milk produces butter. We all know that. That's a, that's a reality. If you want to get some butter, you churn some milk. And pressing the nose brings forth blood. We all know that. Punch somebody in the nose, blood's going to come out. Or even if you pinch your nose, you're going to get yourself a nosebleed if you do it too much. Okay, those are both realities. Agur knows those things are realities. He knows that you know those things are realities. And now that we've all agreed that those things are reality, he equally is going to say this reality, the churning of anger, produces strife. And isn't that exactly what we're seeing right now? The churning of anger. And what does it produce? Does it produce peace? Does it produce justice? Does it produce a right and a justified outcome for the cop who put his knee on George's neck? No, it doesn't do any of that. What it does is it just produces strife. Anger creates strife. The same way that churning milk makes butter if you're involved in churning up anger, guaranteed you're going to get nothing but strife out of it. In the larger sense, like I'm saying right now societally, but even in the smallest sense, in your dealing with somebody in your own household, in dealing with your mate, in dealing with your children, the more you let your anger get a hold of you, the more you're going to pay the long-term price of strife for words that you can't take back or actions that you did in anger. So the best advice then, in summation, not just summation of the words of Agur, but kind of a summation of the book of Proverbs, wisdom, real wisdom, genuine wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. So then walk in such a way that you demonstrate that you have that sort of wisdom. Watch what you say. Watch how you act. Watch how you lift yourself up. Care for others. Don't look down on others. Be generous. Provide for other people. And study to show yourself approved. Study the word of God so that you have a good word to say to people so that you can help other people out 
so that you can give them good advice, so that you can lift them up and give them words of comfort. And in the end, pay attention to the word of God more than you're paying attention to the circumstances of life. Because real wisdom is in the word of God, not in all of this fluff that's all going to burn. Got it? Got it. Questions? No? Okay. Well, then say good night to the internet congregation. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.